Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, Haynes Creek. It is good to be with you today. Good to be worshiping with you. I hope you all doing well today. My name is Travis. I'm a pastor here. If it is your first time, just want to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us, and we would love a chance to reach out. Thank you for your visit. Let you know how much we appreciate you. Uh, so if you could, just uh, let me know that you're here. That's all I'm asking. Just let me know that you're here. You can do that a couple different ways. One, just text the word welcome to that number. Uh, or if you prefer, we have our welcome table right out there with some cards on it. Just fill out one of those cards, leave it on the table. And like I said, that gives me a chance to reach out and thank you for your visit. And church, we're going we're gonna to continue on in our series through the book of Acts. We've spent a lot of time in Acts. We're, we're nearing the end, so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, so we ended at, in Acts chapter 22, verse 29. So we're going to pick up there. If you have your Bibles, awesome. You can go ahead and open up to Acts 22. If not, you can follow along on the screen uh, right here, or we have Bibles out at our welcome table. We'd love to give you that uh, as our gift to you if you don't have one of those. So last week we saw uh, Paul finally arrive in Jerusalem. You know, the, the couple chapters leading up to last week, we saw he's, he was dead set on getting to Jerusalem. He knew without a doubt the Lord was leading him to Jerusalem. And we saw the Spirit promise him, hey, when you get there, it's going to be bad. It's going to go bad for you. Expect trials, expect suffering, expect chains. And that's exactly what happened. Paul gets into town, meets with the church, finds out that, that even the Jewish Christians are kind of unhappy with Paul and what they're hearing, these lies that were made up about Paul, uh, about how he's against Judaism and against the law and all these things that aren't true. Uh, they're, they're telling him, and, and they say, hey, in, in order to kind of help ease the relationships here and kind of, kind of to appease some of the Jewish Christians, uh, the church asked him to complete this vow and pay for these four Christians to complete their Nazarite vow uh, at the temple. So Paul goes along with it, right? You know, he's got a heart for people, wants to honor uh, and serve people in, in whatever way, shape, and form he can. So he goes to the temple to purify himself, going through this ritual, going through the things that the church asked him to do, and somebody spots him and just it just breaks out into this riot. I mean, they, they drag Paul out of the temple. They're beating him, set on trying to kill him until the Romans come in and kind of put a stop to that which leads to Paul being arrested. So Paul gets arrested. He gets a chance to speak before the crowd, shares his testimony, tells them, hey, this is, all, this is all from God, right? Like I was on my way to persecute and arrest Christians and Jesus met me there and he stopped that and he saved me. And then he's the one that sent me on this mission to the Gentiles. Like this is all God. Well, the people didn't want to hear that. Another riot starts up. The Romans bring him back into the barracks to question him. And their interrogative methods were to torture Paul basically with this process called scourging where they would whip Paul repeatedly. It was a process that killed a lot of people. And before that even starts, Paul's like, hey, hold on, time out. I'm a Roman citizen. Y'all can't do this without legally convicting me. And they're like, oh man, we can't do that. We better, we better step back here. And that's what brings us to our passage today. So we pick up our story at the end of Paul's speech, at the end of him being brought into the barracks to be questioned by the Romans. And now their plan is to bring Paul before the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish court system. We've seen this pop up throughout our time in Acts. This is the Jewish court system. And this begins a series of trials for Paul. So we're going to see in chapters 23, 24, 25 and 26, Paul is, is going through various trials, giving his testimony, preaching the gospel in these trials to these various rulers and kings and all these people, uh, eventually making his way 
to Rome. So if you like you know, courtroom dramas, you're a big Law & Order fan, uh, th- these next few weeks are for you. I grew up, my dad was really into that kind of stuff. I don't know about you guys, I, I grew up watching Matlock with him. Any Matlock fans in here? I won't make you admit that out loud. Uh, but he loved it. So I grew up watching all that stuff, these courtroom dramas. If, if that's you, if you're into that, man, these next three weeks, you're going to love, all right? So, so hang with us. Uh, we're going to get through this and, and work our way through it. So let's pick back up in our story, uh, chapter third, or verse 30 of chapter 22. It says this. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were, with, who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was, he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When Paul realized that One part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees. He cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirmed them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently. We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Okay, so Paul gets before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and again, things don't, things don't work out for Paul, right? He starts out by saying, hey, I've lived, a good, I've lived in good conscience, which means I've lived a righteous lifestyle as a Jewish man. Well, this, this crowd, this court, cannot believe that a Christian, a Jewish Christian, could possibly live a righteous Jewish lifestyle. So in their minds, in the high priest's mind, man, Paul's speaking blasphemy. He's lying before them and before God. So he orders them to be struck. And Paul, when he gets hit, he, he, he snaps back. He strikes back and said, oh, you're going to strike me? Well, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, which is basically like, you hypocrite. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're just dead inside, right? Like, that's basically what he said to him. Now, Paul maybe, you know, lashed out a little bit in anger here because as they point out, oh, you're going to talk mean against the high priest. That breaks the law. And Paul's like, okay, you're right. He kind of walks it back a little bit. Like, I didn't, I didn't realize that was the high priest. Now, maybe that's true. Maybe it's darker. Maybe Paul didn't recognize him. I don't know. Maybe it's sarcasm. Like, oh, you're the high priest. Well, you're certainly not acting like one. So how am I supposed to recognize? We don't know. Like, maybe it was sarcasm. Maybe not. We don't really know. But he does walk it back. You know, he's going to honor the office. If he doesn't respect the person, he's at least going to respect the office that God has installed this person in. So Paul walks it back and, and then immediately gets to the heart of the issue, right? He's like, I'm on trial for the resurrection, right? Paul is trusting in Jesus as the Messiah, following Jesus, because he believes that Jesus is raised from the dead. 
So he gets right to the heart of the matter, and that just divides the crowd, right? Some of the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So now an argument happens, this theological debate, and it ends up in another riot, which is Paul's third riot in just a matter of a couple of days here in Jerusalem. Things are not going well for Paul. And we don't have to, you know, you know guess here. I'm sure Paul was pretty discouraged that night, right? And then, then it says that Jesus came and, and stood by him, right? And I love that language. You know, it's not that Jesus appeared to him in a dream. It's not that he sent an angel, which he does sometimes, which he's going to do later for Paul. No, it says that Jesus stood by him. And what a beautiful picture of the presence of Jesus in our lives, right? He is, he is always with us. And it's this beautiful picture. He comes and he stands by Paul and he says, have courage, have courage. And it's similar to the way that we saw Jesus encourage him in Corinth in chapter 18, where he says, don't, he said, don't be afraid. Here's the same thing, have courage, Paul. Don't be afraid. Just as you have testified in Jerusalem, you're going to do the same thing in Rome. You're going to do the same thing in Rome. Don't be afraid because I am bringing you to Rome. All right, let's keep going here. Verse 12. Chapter 23, verse 12. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that, to bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So we took him and brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and led him aside and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. He summoned two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote the following letter, Claudius Lysicius, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. I mean, that's not, that's not exactly true. This guy's definitely painting himself in a positive light here. But anyways, we'll go on. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before their Sanhedrin. I found out the accusations were concerning questions of their law, and there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris, which was about halfway to Caesarea, as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. 
Okay, so uh, we see here that, man, the Jews, they don't just, like, hate Paul, man. Like, they are ready to end Paul's life. The 40 of them, more than 40 of them, put themselves under this curse. Well, I mean, I'm not going to eat or drink until I kill Paul. Well, that doesn't work out so well because the commander finds out about it, Paul's nephew finds out about it, and they get Paul out of there, bring him to Caesarea, the capital city. And I imagine these guys waking up, ready to attack Paul the next day, find out he's gone, and they're like, so about that curse. I was just kidding. Just kidding. Didn't mean it. Just a joke. I, I'm going to go I'm gonna go have breakfast now, right? Like, it's just crazy. It's crazy. They're set out to kill Paul, but the Lord steps in, brings him away, brings him to Caesarea, which is the capital city of the Judea-Palestine area of this time, the governor Felix, and now he's in custody in Caesarea. And again, we're going to pick this up next week where he's going to stand trial before Felix the governor in Caesarea. So there's a lot going on in this passage, right? A lot going on, a trial, another riot, uh, a, a plot to kill Paul, a, a, an escape led by 400 Roman soldiers in the night to get Paul out of the city. Like, this is crazy. This reads like a movie plot, right? Like, this is nuts. So what's going on here? What, one of the things that really stands out to me in this passage is, is the Lord's activity, God's guiding hand and presence throughout this entire passage. I mean, we see this all over the book of Acts, but especially here. God is just guiding him every step of the way, leading Paul exactly to where God wants. When Jesus encourages Paul in verse 11, he says, have courage for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. If you underline or circle things in your Bible, I want you to underline that phrase, it is necessary. It's necessary. It is necessary for him to testify in Rome. That phrase, it is necessary, is the Greek word day. It's one word, day, and it's translated, it is necessary. And it's used often by Luke, the author of Acts here, and he uses it not only in Acts, but in his gospel, Luke, he uses it to describe God's divine activity. God's divine activity. Activity. And in fact, there's 104 uses of this word in your New Testament, and 40 of them are used by Luke in his gospel and in the book of Acts. He, he likes this word a lot. And typically, he's using it of God's guiding hand. And we saw this all the way back in uh, chapter 1 of Acts, where they say it is necessary. The apostle said it's, it's necessary for us to replace Judas. We've lost one of the 12. We need to replace him. That, that it is necessary. He says that that's God's plan for them. It's God's will for them to Find a replacement. In Acts 9.16, when Jesus is telling Paul, hey, I've got a plan for you, and this is my plan that you're going to do these things, he says, this is what you must do for Jesus. This is what you must do for the kingdom. It's that word. It's necessary. In 1921, we saw Paul use this phrase speaking of how it is necessary to get to Jerusalem and then to Rome. He must do this. That's God's guiding hand. We're going to see this in, in chapter 27 when an angel comes and encourages Paul the same way Jesus does here in 23 and says, it, it, you must get to Rome. It's necessary for you to get to Rome. God is leading Paul to Rome, just like he did to Jerusalem. And the rest of Acts from this point on is all about Paul making his way to Jerusalem. It's going to take a couple more years. He's going to have some more suffering. There's some more difficulty along the way. But when we end Acts, Paul will be in Rome, preaching the gospel. What we can learn from that is God always accomplishes his plan and purpose. He always accomplishes 
his plan and purpose. Theologians throughout the centuries have referred to this truth that God always accomplishes what he sets out to do as God's providence. That's your theological word for this, God's providence. And it can be defined in a bunch of different ways. I personally, I really like for a a more technical definition, I really like the way the Heidelberg Catechism defines this. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in Germany in the 1500s based on Martin Luther's work in theology, and it defines God's providence as this. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. John Piper summarizes it this way. He says, God's providence is God's act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Here's Travis's definition. It's a real simple, basic. What does that mean? God's providence is God putting his plan into action. That's what that means. It's God putting his plan into action. God making things happen. When he sets out to plan something, it's not just, you know, let me think through this and let me put some things together and we'll see what happens. Let me just throw it out there. Here's a suggestion. Take it or leave it. Do what you want with it. No, that's not how God works. When he says, I'm going to do something, It's not wishful thinking on God's part. It is a guarantee that it will happen. That's God's providence. He makes things happen. He executes his will in our lives and in all of creation and in all of the universe at all times. We see this throughout Scripture in a bunch of different ways. Hebrews 1 tells us, uh, Hebrews 1, 3 tells us that, that Jesus right now at this moment is upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. The entire universe. Everything that is happening in this entire universe is currently being upheld by Jesus and his power. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us not only does God provide for each one of us, he even feeds the birds of the air. He provides for every part of his creation. Acts 17, Daniel chapter 4 reminds us that God is the one who rules over all the kingdoms. He sets up kings, he tears down kings. He's over all of that. Proverbs 16.9 says that God directs our steps. Every step of our life being directed by God's hand. Psalm 139 verse 16 says that that God determines the exact number of days that you and I are going to live. Psalm 147 verse 8 says that that God even makes the grass grow. He does it all. He does everything. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 summarizes it this way. It says, in him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. What's God's providence? It's that. It's that he works out everything. Everything according to his purpose and his will. There is nothing that happens in our lives And in this entire creation, in this entire universe, that God is not guiding and directing. Now, does that make us just mindless drones that are just robots? No, that's that's another sermon for another day. No, that's not what God's providence teaches us, okay? That's not what we see. It's that God is, is active in our lives and in our creation, guiding and leading us according to his plan and purpose.
And we see this throughout this passage, right? We see this with the, the Roman soldiers protecting Paul every step of the way, right? Like God is using this evil kingdom who otherwise, like, why do they care about Paul? Who's Paul to them, right? No, God is using them to protect Paul and eventually bring him exactly where God wants him to go. I, Paul being a Roman citizen, like, that didn't happen just by chance, right? We've already seen that this, this commander had to purchase his citizenship. Like, this didn't come easily. And Paul's just, you know, coincidence, born a Roman citizen? Sure, that's just, you know, happenstance, right? No, that's, that's God's purpose. That's God's plan. And because of that, it affords Paul different responsibilities, different rights than somebody else who's not a Roman citizen. It's going to give him the opportunity to go to Rome and appeal to Caesar. A, Roman, a non-Roman citizen couldn't do that. This is God's guiding hand. Paul's nephew, of all people, he's the guy that hears about the plot. I mean, Jerusalem's a big city. There's a lot of people. You would think a conspiracy like this, they're not just going around bragging about it, telling everybody about it, but, but Paul's nephew, of all people, just happens to hear about this. And then the Roman commander just happens to listen to this kid. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I might have, like, it'd be understandable if the commander was like, you're, you're just a family. You're just trying to protect your family member. Like, why am I going to listen to you? You're not unbiased in this. How, how do I know you're not lying to me? He just, all, just happens to believe the kid. Get, Paul gets sent to Caesarea on his way. To, like, all of these things just, just happening? No, that's not how life works. It's God directing and guiding every single thing that happens. This is God's providence. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? How can I, uh, what does that truth mean for me? It means that we can trust God. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. We can trust God. We can put our full confidence in him and in his plan and in his power to make his plan happen. We can trust God. We don't need wishful thinking when it comes to God and his plans. We don't need wishful thinking. We don't, we don't need to, to take matters into our own hands to make sure something works out for us. We don't need to do that. We don't need to worry or have fear about failed plans. I mean, how many times have we made plans and it not work out, right? Like countless, countless times. It's every week with, with me and my, my three kids, right? Like you, you, with kids, you just, you just hope something works out, right? You make a plan and you just know, like, it, that's not going to work out. That's not how it is with God. His plans don't fail. There's no uncertainty when it comes to God's providence. When he says something is going to happen, it will happen. He always puts his plan into action. Always. So we can trust his providence. And, and the rest of our time, I want to give us three ways specifically why we can trust God's providence. We can trust God's providence because it's always good. It always happens. And it's always on time. It's always good. Always happens always on time. So our first one, if you're taking notes, it's always good. It's always good. Our God is a, is a good God, and he is always working out his plan for his good and our good. Romans 8, 28 reminds us of this truth. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things means all things, not some things, not only the big things, all things. All things happen according to his plan, and those plans are good, church. 
they're good. They're for his good and they're, they're for our good. And again, we, we see this all, all throughout Scripture. Like even, even the bad moments, even the sinful moments, God takes those and, and is using those things the whole time, using them for good. I think the place that we see this the clearest is the story of Joseph. I love the story of Joseph. Love the story of Joseph. So let's just remind ourselves of that story. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, right? One of the 12 sons that would eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's one of the youngest, right? He's one of the youngest, but he's also the favorite child, right? He's the favorite of his dad, Jacob. And as siblings do, very envious of that, right? Like they don't like the treatment that Joseph gets. They don't like his place of prominence in the family. And here's Joseph. We're told he has these dreams from God of his family bowing down to him. Look, your brothers are already annoyed with you. That's not going to play well. Tell them that. And it doesn't, right? Now, they take it too far. They're like, man, we got to get rid of this guy. Okay, kill your own brother? Like, that's crazy. Who does that? But that's how much they, they hated and were so envious of Joseph. Now, they calm themselves down and eventually decide, okay, we'll just sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery, and Joseph eventually makes his way down to Egypt. Far from his homeland, far from his family, far from everything he knows, finds himself in Egypt working for this guy named Potiphar. Now, the Lord's favor is on Joseph every step of the way. So Potiphar loves Joseph and kind of elevates him to manage his entire household. Now, with that, we find out that Potiphar's wife also loves Joseph and not in a good way, right? So she tries to seduce him. Joseph runs out of them. She's embarrassed, so she falsely accuses Joseph. And this lands Joseph, an innocent man, in prison. But even then, God is, is using that for his plan and purposes. He elevates Joseph to kind of running the prison almost, there's this other guy that worked for Pharaoh that found himself in prison, and he has this weird dream, and God gives the interpretation to Joseph. And the guy gets released, and he's like, hey, I'm going to remember you. And we're like, oh, man, things are going to start working out for Joseph. Nope, he's in prison for seven more years, y'all. Seven years he's in prison, falsely accused. Now, all of a sudden, Pharaoh, leader of Egypt, right, leader of the most powerful nation at this time, has this crazy dream doesn't know what it means. And all of a sudden, this guy who was working for Pharaoh, who was in prison with Joseph, remembers, oh man, there's this guy that can tell you what that means. His name's Joseph and he's in prison. I'm sure Pharaoh was like, oh, sounds great. Let me go get a prisoner, some random person that you just said. Let me get him out of prison and he'll help me with this, right? Like that doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if God's the one doing this, right? So God brings him out of prison. He, he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. And we, we remember the dream, right? The dream is that, that you're gonna have seven years of plenty, right? There's gonna be seven years of good harvest, lots of food. And that's going to be followed by seven years of severe famine. And Joseph says, this is a warning from God. And he's telling us, man, we need to save for seven years because the next ones after that are going to be rough. And Pharaoh listens, gets Joseph out of prison, and eventually Joseph becomes the second in charge, right? The prime minister of the most powerful nation at this time. So they save for seven years, then the seven years of famine come, and it, it's wrecking the entire area, not just Egypt, but, but beyond that, including Joseph's family. And who comes down to Egypt, bowing themselves before the prime minister, asking for food, asking for help? It's Joseph's family. And Joseph, I mean, gladly grants this, right? Like, gra- gladly provides for his family. And now we're starting to see what is going on here. We're seeing the, the pieces come together of what God was doing. And, and Joseph says this at the end of, of his time after they've been reunited with his family. He says this in Genesis 50, verse 20, talking to his family. He said, you planned evil against me, 
God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. They planned evil. God planned the same thing for good. I think sometimes we we think God is like this awesome EMT service, you know, guy coming in to save the day. Oh, you've made a mess of things. Let me come in and rescue you. No, that's not what it says here. It's not you planned it for evil and God turned it for good. No, you planned evil. God planned the same thing for good. That's what God does. You planned evil against me, but God planned this whole thing to bring me to Egypt to put me in a place where I would interact with somebody who worked with Pharaoh and eventually bring me before Pharaoh so that I could be in this position right now to provide food for my family. Without that, his family would have died of starvation. Joseph would have died of starvation. And there ends the promise that God made to Joseph's grandfather Abraham, great-grandfather Abraham, where he was going to build Israel into a nation. Man, has gone. His family's dead at that point. Famine destroyed them and destroyed God's plans. But that's not what happens with God. That's not what happens with God. When he makes a plan, it happens, right? It happens, and it's always good. What, what we, what Satan, what this world plans for evil and destruction and pain and death, God plans for good. He works all things, including the broken things, for his good. And he wants to give us His goodness, like that's what God does. He wants to give us good things. Jesus says this in Luke 11. Luke 11, verse 11, it says, What father father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God is a good father who knows how and wants to give good gifts to us, his children. Author and pastor Tim Chester puts it this way. He summarizes the truth this way. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. Our hearts are always longing for something. They're longing for things like joy, satisfaction, peace, fulfillment, identity, acceptance, love. We could could go on and on. And and we buy into the lie that we think we can find those things, find our deepest longings, our deepest desires apart from God. But we can't. And here's the beauty of of the gospel. Here's the beauty of, of God is he promises to give us all of that and more in him. We don't have to go searching. We don't have to go look elsewhere. We can find everything we ultimately want and need in Jesus alone. We can find it in him. And look, Satan knows that. That's why we talked about a couple weeks ago where where he takes the good things of God and he creates a counterfeit version of it to lead us astray. And we buy into those counterfeit versions all the time and chase after things that God promises. Like, here, you can have this good thing that you want. I've got it right here. And we're like, no, 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 I want want this, this fake version of it over here. You know, Christmas is coming up, so, you know, at Christmas time, we, we give gifts to, to the people we love, right? Like, that's one of the things that we do to celebrate Christmas is we give gifts. I don't, I don't know why that is, but we do, right? We do that. Uh, so think back when you were a kid. Like, what, what were some of the, the, the best gifts you received as a kid? One of my favorite gifts that I got as a kid was, was a basketball goal. I was like nine years old, and I was starting to really get into basketball, so my parents bought a basketball goal, and they, they put it in our driveway, and man, I spent hours out there 
playing basketball. I'm sure they were annoyed at the sound of a bouncing ball after that and probably regretted doing that, but they didn't, and it was awesome, and I loved it. It was one of my favorite gifts that I've ever been given. But what if they were like, hey, here, you can have a basketball goal, or you can have a picture of a basketball goal. Which one do you want? Like, who's, who's going to be, oh, you know what? I, I prefer the picture. I really just like to look at it. It's all, so picture's fine. Picture will do. No, that'd be crazy. Who would take the picture over the real thing? And yet we do that with God all the time. We chase after these fake versions, trying to look anywhere for the things that we want most, except for God, right? Like we, we look elsewhere, and we don't have to, church, because our God is good. He offers us the real thing, and we can trust in his goodness. So why trust in God? Because he's good. Second reason we can trust in God's providence is it always happens. We can trust God's providence. We can trust God's plan because his plans always happen. Paul has promised here that he's going to testify in Rome. God promised him it is, it, it's necessary for you to go to Rome. You are going to Rome. So it doesn't matter what the Jews do. It doesn't matter how many conspiracies and plots and how many oaths and curses they put themselves under. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want to do, and you're not changing God's plan. You're not going to get in the way of what God wants to do. It doesn't matter what the Roman soldiers may or may not do. Paul is going to Rome. It's a done deal because God's the one that said it's going to happen. When God makes a plan, when God gives a promise, it always happens. It always happens. And how? how? How can God do that? Why can we trust in that? It's because God is powerful enough to make those things happen. He is all powerful. He has all power. He has all authority over everything that is going on in his creation, including in our lives. He has all the power. He has all the authority, and he's powerful enough to make anything that he says happen. No matter how wild or crazy it may seem to us, God makes it happen. There's, again, several examples of this in Scripture. I want to point out two of them, one where it didn't work out so well and the other one where it did. So uh, one of them uh, is when the Jews got released from, uh, from Egypt, right? God brings them out of slavery, brings them to Mount Sinai, gives them the law, and they make their, their way to the promised land. Well, they get there in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. They're on the edge of the promised land. And, and some of us may remember the story where they, they send out 12 spies into the land to kind of scope things out and figure out what's going on. They come back and they're like, y'all, this land is awesome. It's great. It's beautiful. It's perfect. But we can't go in. We can't go in. There's too many nations. They're too big. They're too powerful. We will get destroyed. So you know what? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's just hang out here. We don't really, sure, it's a great land, but we don't, we don't really need that. And there's two of them, Joshua, or yeah, Joshua and Caleb, who are like, no, 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 no. God, God promised us this land. He promised us. So I don't care how big and how powerful those nations are. God is for us. Who, who can be against us, right? Well, they don't listen to those guys. They're like, nope, let's, let's doubt God's power. Let's doubt his plan. Let's do things our own way. And that doesn't work out. We know the story. It ends up with them wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. So they doubted, and it didn't work out so well. Well, now uh, another example that we see is in Joshua chapter 6. Now they're, they're, they're walking into the promised land, right? It's 40 years later. They're coming in. They cross over the Jordan River. They come to the first nation, the first city, and it's Jericho. And what's Jericho known for? They're big, powerful walls. I mean, they are the epitome of a good offense is actually a good defense, right? Like, that's who these people are. 
They put up these massive walls, impenetrable walls, and God's like, don't worry about it. I've given you this city. You're going to defeat them, and here's how you're going to do it. You're going to walk around the walls for six days. Walk around the walls one time for six days, and then on the seventh day, here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk around seven times. And on the seventh time, at the end of that, you're going to yell really loudly. Just scream really loud and just watch what happens. I got you. Like, y'all, that's, that's crazy. Like, let's think about that for a minute. We're going to walk around some walls and then scream and, like, it's just going to fall down. Like, what, what in the world? Who does that? That's crazy. But this time they listen. They trust God. They walk around the walls. Seventh day, they walk around seven times. At the end of that, they scream really loud, blow some trumpets. And what happens? The walls fall down. And they take the city. They defeat Jericho. This impenetrable force. They just walk right in. All because of God's power. Again, pastor and author Tim Chester summarizes this truth this way. Talking about God's greatness and God's power. He says, God is great. God is powerful, so we don't have to be in control. We don't have to be in control. We don't have to live life as though everything depends on us. We don't have to be in control. When we talk about trusting God, it means that that I trust God with the outcome for any and all situations in my life. This is me putting my, my trust in his sovereign control and his ultimate power and authority over all things. And the temptation is to do the opposite. The temptation is to not trust God, but, but to trust myself, to depend on myself, to live as though, you know what, God, I, I got this. I got this. I don't need you. I got this. Or, you know what, God, I don't really like the way you're doing things, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to do things a little different because I, I know best. But because God is great, because God is powerful, we don't have to live like that. And here's what happens when, when we doubt God's power, when we doubt God's providence, one of the fruits of that is we worry. We worry a lot. And what's worry? What, what is worry? Worry is, is stressing out over something that hasn't happened yet and may not ever happen. I don't know about you, man, but we are, we are so good at, at just creating these scenarios of like, well, you know, this is, I'm going to do this, and then all these bad things are going to come. And we just stress and we worry over made-up things that may or may not happen. And we just work ourselves up, right? That's all due to us not trusting in God's power and control. Another way, we, when we doubt God, we, we try to, to gain back some semblance of control. And typically when we do that, when we're trying to control things, we try to work things out in our favor through manipulation or domination, right? We're just going to bully our way through it. We're just going to manipulate these people or these situations to get what we want. And man, that never works out well. Or we, we wear ourselves down with just busyness and frustration, right? We just work ourselves to death because we're living as though life is all on my shoulders. I've got to carry everything. Or we make security and comfort or wealth or any number of things in this world our higher, highest priority, more than God, more than Jesus and his kingdom. We become preoccupied with things of this world. And it's all due to us not trusting in his power and his greatness and his sovereign control over our lives. And God's got this. He doesn't need our help, right? He doesn't need us to do anything. And that's the beauty of it, is we can just sit back and trust. We don't have to carry the weight because he's already carrying all of it. 
so we can trust in God's power and in his promises. And our third, third reason why we can trust God's providence is it's always on time. It's always on time. That God not only plans everything out, not only does he make it all happen, but he does this according to his perfect timing. His perfect timing. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 puts it this way. It says, there is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. Uh, that, that word for occasion would probably be better translated appointed time. There is an appointed time for everything. There's a time for everything, a season for everything. And God's the one who determines that, right? Fate and destiny doesn't determine my life, doesn't determine timing. Luck or just coincidence or happenstance doesn't determine that timing. God determines that timing. God sets the appointed time for everything that happens in his creation, including what happens in my life. He determines that. And look, that's, that's tough because it means we got to wait. How about you? But I don't like waiting, right? Who loves being patient? <laughs> like, we don't like to wait. But this is exactly what the Bible calls us to. Psalm 27, verses 13 through 14 says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Wait. Psalm 37, verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. So what this reminds us of is God's job, God's responsibility is to act, is to do, is to make his plan happen and to work everything out according to his timing. That's his job. That's his responsibility. Our job as followers of Jesus is to wait, is to be still, is to be silent before the Lord. And yo, that's hard. That's hard. This is why patience is listed as a fruit of the Spirit, right? It does not come naturally to us. We don't like to wait. We don't like to be still. We don't like to just sit on our hands and feel like we're, we're just not doing something, right? Like we, we got to do, we got to act, we got to move, we got to stay busy, we got to keep going, right? That's what we do. That's how we live our lives. We don't stop. We're not still. We certainly don't like to wait on the Lord. But part of trusting in God's plan is believing and reminding ourselves that God's timing is perfect. See, if we don't believe that, if we don't trust that, but when things don't happen according to our schedule, if things don't happen quickly enough for us, well, man, we're going to revert back to exactly what we just said. We're going we're to try to take back control. We're going to live as a, you know, all right, God, you know what? Tried it your way. Didn't work out. I, I'm going to do things my way now. But if we truly believe that God's timing is perfect, well, then we can wait. Then we can be patient. Then we can trust. Something that, that I've learned along the way and something that I honestly need constant reminders of is that God's aware of our timetables. Like God's aware of our deadlines, right? Sometimes we make up deadlines. We just put deadlines on ourselves that aren't real. Like I'm not talking about that. But like the actual deadlines and timetables that we have in life, God is aware of that. He knows when we need an answer. He knows when we need him to act and come through. He knows all of that. 
And he'll do it in his perfect timing, and we just have to trust that. So God's aware of our timetables. He's aware of, of when we need him. And again, I've seen this throughout my life, and hopefully one day I'll actually you know, fully know and, and believe that and won't need these constant reminders. But for now, I need reminders, uh, as, as God often does. And one of the things uh, that reminded me that this happened a few years ago, we, uh, uh, when we bought our house where we live now, and we live in Decula, uh, and, and when we bought that house four years ago, September of 2018, it came after a year of, of not having a house, of just kind of living in random places over the course of a year. Uh, so we rewind a little bit more to that, that summer of 2017. We, we believed strongly that God was saying, sell your house and buy a different one. Sell your house, downsize, get something different. I'm leading you away from this house. So we're like, okay, God. So we sold our house, and we thought he was going to bring us you know, closer to where I was at that time ministering at a church uh, in Buford. So we thought, okay, we're, he's going to lead us to, to this area near the church, to be really in our church community. Like, that's clearly what God's doing. So that's where we were looking, and we sold our house, and thankfully the Lord provided this family uh, that, that had this house nearby. It was a family friend of ours that was a part of our church, and they were living in Chicago at the time because their family was up there. They were in Chicago. Their house was sitting empty, and they were like, here, just, just stay in our house. And y'all was like really nice house. Like, no way we could have ever lived there on our own. So they let us live there. They have this huge empty basement, let us store all of our stuff there. So we were living there, and we were looking for houses. We were praying and asking, like, hey, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? And man, there, were, there was nothing, nothing, nothing in our price range, nothing where we thought the Lord's like, there, there's just nothing. And man, weeks and months go by, and all of a sudden now it's May, and we're still living in these people's houses, and they're like, oh, hey, by the way, in a couple weeks, we're moving back down from Chicago. Y'all can stay there, but just know we're, we're moving back full time. We're like, okay, that's going to be awkward and a little weird. So let's figure this out. So over the summer, man, we were, we were staying at my parents' house for a little bit. We were renting Airbnbs. We were going out of town. Uh, at one point, like towards the end of the summer in July, we, we sent Kendra and the kids out to Texas to stay with her family for a couple weeks. And that was, you know, my time, like, okay, we've, like, we got to buckle down. We got to find some place to live. We can't. We were running a house at that time for like 500 bucks a week. We can't keep paying for that. Like, we need a house, Lord. So here I am in Georgia. My wife and kids are in Texas, and it's my job to find a house, right? So I'm just like, Lord, please. So this house comes up in Tequila, and I tell my realtor, like, I'm just going through, like, I'm just looking at everything at that point. I'm like, hey, I want to go check this house out. It's in our price range. I got to check it out. And she's like, no, that's too far for y'all. You don't want to live there. That's going to be 30 minutes away from your church. You don't want to live there. That's too far. It's not at all in the area. I was like, look, I got to find something, okay? Just show me the house. I need to see it. And something we were praying for was, Lord, provide a place for community, provide some relationship with neighbors, provide missional opportunities. Like, we were praying for that. And we come to this house, my realtor and I walk through, we're FaceTiming Kendra as we're walking through, and we end it, and Kendra's like, whatever you think is best. And I'm like, oh, thanks, appreciate the weight of that. Like, I don't know what to do here. And my realtor looks at me after we end that, and she's like, if you like this, you got to put an offer in today. This is going to go quick. I was like all right, Lord, here we go. I'm just going to trust you. All right. So I put in an offer and Kendra's like, what happened? I was like, I put an offer in. I might have bought a house while you're not even here. She's like, okay, all right, we'll see how it goes. You know, so that day I found out that our offer got accepted, but seven more came in over the weekend and we were, we just happened, again, happened to be the first ones to put in an offer. And man, that house has answered every prayer for us. It's been perfect for us. It's been awesome. We have great relationships with our neighbors. We've had so many missional opportunities to see neighbors come to know Jesus. Like, it has been perfect for us. And I can tell you right now, if God brought that house on the market a month after we sold our house, I wouldn't have even considered it because it wasn't where we thought the Lord was leading us. It wasn't what we wanted to happen. It wasn't what we were praying and asking for. God had a different plan, and he had a different timeline than what we had, and he worked it out 
perfectly in his timing. And y'all, he's done that time and time again. I'm sure you could have story after story of how God has shown up just in the nick of time, right? Oh, just, just at the perfect time, God came through. It's because his timing is perfect. God works out all of his plans, everything he wants to accomplish, and he works it out in his perfect timing. See, God knows what we need, and just as importantly, he knows when we need it. God knows what we need, and he knows when we need it. God's timing is perfect. We can trust that. So let's sit and wait and pray and trust. So we can trust God's providence because it's always good. It always happens, and it's always on time. God's providence is perhaps most clearly seen in the gospel, in his salvation for us. The Bible makes it clear that without him, there is no salvation. We can't save ourselves. We can't do that on our own. As Acts 4.12 reminds us, if we remember all, our, all that long ago to Acts chapter 4, it says that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. Salvation is only found in him, and it's because of Jesus that the curse of sin is removed. Right, just like we saw these men put themselves under a curse to kill Paul, you and I, apart from Jesus, are under the curse of sin. Our lives are doomed. We can't save ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't wipe away our sin. We can't find forgiveness on our own. We can't do it. Salvation only comes from God. And the beauty of that, the beauty of the gospel reminds us that the way God saves us is by taking on our curse. Right? We're under the curse of sin, and Jesus willingly, after living a perfect life, takes on our curse, takes on our sin, takes on the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. Jesus takes on all of that and then gives us salvation, gives us his righteousness, gives us justification, makes things right between us and God, gives us freedom, redeems us, sets us free, forgives us of everything, past, present, future, and all forgiven by Jesus. He's the one who does all of this. And all he asks from us is exactly what we've been talking about today. Trust. Trust. Will we trust and believe and put our faith in Jesus? That's where salvation comes from. It's his gift through faith in him, through trust in him. So in a moment, we're going to pray, and we're going to worship, and we're just like we do every Sunday. We're going to pause for a moment of communion. So it's a Christian in the room. As I pray and the band comes back up, if you're a believer in here, this time is for us. This time is for us to, to worship Jesus. So here's what I would encourage you to do. Spend some time preparing your heart. Spend some time in prayer. You know, maybe you're realizing, man, I've been, I've been struggling to believe. I've been struggling to, to trust in your plan, Lord. I've been trying to work things out in my own strength, trying to work things out according to my timeline. I'm not trusting. Maybe we need to spend a few minutes in prayer and worship before our Lord and just remind ourselves of his goodness in our lives. 
remind ourselves that, that he truly is all-powerful, that he truly does have all authority, and we can trust him. Our lives are safe and secure in his hands. Now, whether we believe that or not doesn't change that truth. But man, our hearts are more settled when we do believe that truth. So maybe we need to remind ourselves of that. So as you're prepared, as you're ready, believer in the room, we we go to either side of the table and we, we take the bread, we take the cup, we eat, we drink, and we remember and we celebrate and we worship our good God and Savior that he has provided salvation, that he has provided a way out, that he has done all of this, right? Like sometimes we just need to sit and remember the many blessings of God and just thank him and celebrate him for that. Now, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, one, I'm glad you're here. I want you to keep coming. This is a safe place to work out your doubts, your questions, your fears. This time isn't for you, but I didn't want to tell this. I didn't want to remind you of what we've talked about today. You know, we're all searching for something. We're all searching, we're all looking, we're all longing for something, and so often we look for that in the things of this world. We search for fulfillment, acceptance, love, peace, happiness in this world, and sometimes we find it, but it's fleeting. It's not real. It's counterfeit. And that is ultimately only going to lead to death and destruction and brokenness. We can only find that in Jesus. So if you today want to stop searching, want to stop looking and put your faith in Jesus, man, I would love to talk to you about that. I'll be hanging out in the back. If you want to talk, you got questions, you need prayer for anything, I'd be, I'd love to do that. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to answer any questions you might have. Let me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we, we thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for what we've seen throughout this book and especially in today's passage that you are just, Lord, you're guiding everything. You do it all in Acts, Lord. Anything that happens, it is because of you, just like throughout all of history, right now, in this universe, in this world, in my life, Lord, everything that happens is because of you, Jesus. So thank you. Thank you for the many blessings that you give us. Thank you for the many ways that you provide, Lord. I pray in these moments of difficulty, in these moments of uncertainty, Lord, where it is so tempting and so easy to stop trusting in you and trust in ourselves, Lord, would we, would we trust? Would we remind ourselves of these truths and believe in you again, Jesus? Would you give us the strength to trust you even in the difficult moments, even in the times where we don't have an answer? Maybe we've been praying for weeks or months or years, Lord, would we trust in your timing? Lord, would you help us be patient and wait on you? So, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your guiding hand. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your timing, Jesus. We love you. We praise you today. In your name we pray. Amen.